0: Broadcasting from behind the Second Amendment Iron Curtain in the shadows of the New York City skyline, this is Gun For Hire Radio, the voice of one million New Jersey gun owners, with your hosts, Sandy Berardi and Master Firearms Trainer Anthony Calandra.
1: Live from the land that freedom forgot, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. Welcome to it.
2: Oh, my God. It's a couple of days after the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case with the Supreme Court. Our own Dan Schmutter was there, and and he's back. He's in the studio here with none other than Scott Bach. So we're going to be discussing the New York State case as well as red flag laws and mag bans. So, Dan and Scott, Dan, you leading off since you drove down to D.C., the night before stood, stood there was it takes like an hour the whole thing, the exchange is yeah, about an hour, about an hour yeah, and then you got in your car and came right back in a snowstorm yeah pretty much yeah see that's that's dedication can you share with us your opinions thoughts and feelings please
1: sure absolutely so um, uh, the the argument. Was mostly about something called mootness, and uh, you know, I want to, for your listeners, let me give a just give a, a basic explanation as to what that means, because there's a whole bunch of jargon that's going to go back and forth, and I want to make sure people know what we're talking about. Um, so, courts, and particularly federal, the federal courts, but courts generally, uh, they don't give. Uh, what's called an advisory opinion. You can't just ask a court, oh, tell me what you think of the law uh, and let me have your opinion. What courts do is they resolve actual, concrete disputes between actual people. And what that means is that for a court to have jurisdiction to hear a dispute, they have to be in a position to actually give relief to the plaintiff. Right? They have to. There has to be something they can actually give the plaintiff. If they, if they decide that they're going to find in favor of the plaintiff. And so if there's nothing they can do, then there's really no live case. And the courts generally don't hear those kinds of things. Um, and when, a, when you have a case where there's a genuine concrete dispute, but the dispute disappears, in other words, there's no longer anything that the court can do, then they call that moot. So that's what moot means. It means the case has kind of disappeared. It's dried up. It's, 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 it's evaporated, essentially. Um, So what happened in this case? Let's talk a little bit about the facts of this case. Um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association sued New York City over its permitting system. Now, uh, New York State has a handgun permitting system that is similar to New Jersey's in some way and different than New Jersey's in other ways. Um, New York City requires a permit for mere possession. Um, and so they have a couple different kinds of permits. They have something called a premises permit, and you need a premises permit if you're going to simply possess a handgun in your home. Uh, there's also something called an unrestricted permit, otherwise also known as a carry permit. And, so, uh, and they're very different, obviously, and they're regulated differently. And what this case involved was the premises permit, specifically New York City's version of the premises permit, because New York City, not surprisingly, has its own regulatory overlay on top of New York state law. New York City, as to a lot of areas of law, to make their own rules, and uh, and firearms is one of those areas where they make a lot of their own rules. Yes. Um, so New York City, up until the summer of this year, New York City had a very strange rule for premises permits. If you had a permit for, to to possess a handgun in your home, uh, you were only allowed to transport it to seven specific places in the city. Seven approved ranges, ranges that were approved by the NYPD. That's I couldn't
2: take it to a match out of state?
1: You, there, well, there, cer- there were certain narrow exemptions, but for the most part, you can't take it out of state. Gotcha. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't take it out of the city. Out of that, the city. That's the part. So, so, for example, if you lived in Manhattan and you had a, a summer home in the Hamptons or in Montauk, you couldn't bring your handgun to your summer home in the Hamptons. If you had a, a home up in Peekskill or <coughs> up in Lake George, you couldn't transport your handgun. The rule was that if you wanted a, 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 a handgun at your uh, Hamptons house, you had to buy another handgun to Which have it to leave Ginsburg it
2: Ginsburg brought that up. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And, that, and, that, and that, it's kind of a crazy thing. I mean, there's lots of crazy rules in the highly restrictive places like New York, New Jersey, California, but this one is among the craziest. So, uh, until the summer, that was the rule. Now... Um, the plaintiffs, when they sued, there were, there were two things that they emphasized. Now, now, this is important because, you know, they were seeking, the plaintiffs in the case were seeking to have the entire rule struck down completely. But as part of their papers, with the court, they emphasized and identified two problems. Number one, <coughs> can't bring it to another home. Number two, can't bring it to a range outside of the city, right? So maybe you want to go to a range in Westchester. Can't bring it. Maybe you want to come here to Woodland Park Range. Can't bring it. Okay. So those are the two main things they argued. Now, there's other things that you can't do based upon that rule, and we, we identified a few of those things in our amicus curiae brief that we filed with the court in the case. Um, for example, uh, if you live in the Bronx, you're 20 minutes away from Connecticut. And as a lot of your listeners probably know, it's, it's fairly readily, uh, uh, it's pretty, it's not that hard to get a Connecticut carry permit. Mm-hmm. So if you live in the Bronx, it may very well be very natural for you to spend time in Connecticut. You may want to carry under your Connecticut uh, non-resident permit. Well, you can't do that because you can't bring your handgun with you to the Connecticut. Connecticut doesn't have a problem with it as long as you have a Connecticut permit, but New York City won't let you do it. Another example that we gave in our amicus brief is uh, training. Uh, outside of New York City, there are plenty of very high-quality schools that people would want to go to. They may want to come here to Gun for Hire,
2: very high quality.
1: They may want to go to Thunder Ranch. They may want high to go quality. to Tactical Response. High quality. You can't do it. Uh, you know, you can't bring your handgun <laughs> with you if you want to get training. So, you know, these are some of the other things that uh, that you can't do because of the uh, of the restrictions.
2: Can't rule. stop and pee or go see my mother-in-law either.
1: The well, coffee, We'll talk about coffee okay. and the mother-in-law thing in a minute okay. because that actually that actually was prominently featured. In the argument. I know. I, mean, I read. I read yeah. the argument like three times. Yeah, exactly. So, so, um, so at the district court level, in the trial court, uh, New York City, of course, defended its law and they won. At the court of appeals for the Second Circuit on appeal, they won. Um, so, and, and, so, uh, and I'm sure, in a surprise to them, uh, the Supreme Court granted petition for certiorari, meaning that Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Well, as soon as the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, New York City suddenly decided to change its tactics. New York City changed small aspects of its restrictions. So what they, did, they didn't repeal the transport ban, what they did was they carved out small exemptions. And they simply said, okay, your complaint says you can't go to your Hampton's house? Okay, now you can go to your Hampton's house. Your complaint says you want to go to a range outside the city? Okay, you can go to a range outside the city. But that's it. They made two carve outs tailored to what the allegations of the complaint were. The problem is the the plaintiffs weren't saying, well, we want to go to the Hampton's house. They were saying this is unconstitutional. It should be struck down entirely. But what New York City did was they got cute and they said, oh, okay, we're just going to give you those two small things. Now. The problem with that is that that doesn't necessarily... Oh, and the argument, of course, was that now that we've given them those two small crumbs, the case is now moot, because they got what they were asking for. There's nothing the court can do for them. The case should be dismissed. Now, there's two problems with that. First of all, it didn't didn't give them everything they could possibly nope. get because they gave them two little cards. They should have it. repealed it. They should have repealed it entirely. The other thing is that uh, the Supreme Court has this doctrine called the voluntary cessation exception. What the Supreme Court has basically said is, look, if if you're a defendant in a lawsuit and you get sued and you said, oh, we're getting sued, you know what, we'll just stop doing that thing that you're complaining of, that's not going to defeat the jurisdiction of the court. Why? Because if you decide that you're going to stop doing it, you could just as easily start it up again once the case is dismissed. And they're not that dumb. They understand that simply saying, okay, I give up, I'm going to stop, doesn't mean anything. And so merely so if New York City New York City adopting this car these car outs probably would not by itself have made a strong moodness argument because everybody knows that a month later New York City probably could have put those right back in and
2: another six year journey to possibly get it back it, to the Supreme ex- Court. Exactly.
1: It would take many years to get back to the Supreme Court. But another thing happened. Following New York City's creation of these carve-outs, the New York State Legislature also enacted a statute. And what the statute did was effectively preempt the New York City travel restrictions. It was broader, and it's a, new, and it's a state statute. And so the argument that, that the travel ban is no longer effective became much stronger. And they did that, obviously, on purpose in order to bolster the mootness argument. And, you know, even you know, even in, even at the oral argument, New York City acknowledged that they supported it. You know, uh, Justice Alito asked, well, what was your role in the statute? Mm-hmm. He asked the, the attorney, uh, Richard Deering, for New York City. He said, well, we supported it. Obviously, Um, so so that those were the maneuverings that took place over the summer, the spring, and the summer in order to try to get rid of this thing. Because obviously, they knew that if the Supreme Court were to hear the case on the merits, there could be some significant
3: law made favoring Second Amendment rights. Can can I just make a political point here, please, really quickly? Just just the big picture here is you have an arrogant city that stands by its law at two federal court level. And then when it has to face, Supreme Court review says, let's try to change the entire game so the Supreme Court can't hear it. Right. That is what is going on here. And it just reveals the mindset. And by the way, they can't even do it wholeheartedly. They have to do it <laughs> right. with throwing you a tiny crumb and then right. the state has to come in to try to broaden it and tighten it. This is a full... Polit- politically speaking it's a full retreat it's they're terrified that the Supreme Court is going to hand them their asses pardon my French okay and so they're at the last minute scrambling to try to change the rule that's the subject of appeal which is it just as a human being it's just like mm. it's just dirty yeah, you know what creepy. I mean it's just yeah. like and, and I just want to say and and then Dan I don't mean to you know I'm not stealing your thunder here but if the Supreme Court says, yeah, you're right, it's moot, what does that say to everybody else appealing? It says, if there's a statute that's on appeal, just change the statute and everything will be fine. There has to be a consequence. Okay, They have to send a signal to other towns that if you mess with a fundamental right, we're going to mess with you. But anyway, so much for the political side of it.
1: You know, that, that raises an issue that I, I'll get to a little bit more later, which is this concept of trying to manipulate the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, yes. um, engaging in the manipulative uh, conduct, which, de- which would deprive the Supreme Court of jurisdiction to hear important issues of law. Um, and that's something that, you know, that ought to be of concern. Um, and so, so and I'll get a little bit more into that later. But that's, you know, that's part of I think what Scott is talking about because that is a problem. Um, and and there are, the Supreme Court has has a number of doctrines designed to deal with that, including the voluntary cessation exception. Um, but uh, th- 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 I think that is an important thing, an important aspect of this case. Uh, interesting aside about the New York State statute that uh, preempted, that was attempting to preempt the New York City travel ban. Um, when, I fr- when it first came out and I read it, I noticed that there's a provision in there that prohibits the transportation through the city of a handgun without a New York City issued permit that was a new aspect of law and what that created is what something I like to call the Long Island problem because although it allows you to leave the city with uh, uh, with your handgun you can't enter the city with your handgun. And that's a problem for people who live on Nassau, Nassau and South Atlanta <laughs> 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 because they suddenly become landlocked with their handguns. They literally can't leave the uh-huh. island with their handguns because you can't get out of Long Island without going through Queens. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, that created a whole new problem. <laughs> Boy, these <laughs>
3: lawmakers, they sure see all the issues. Yes,
1: it, absolutely. It, it, exactly. Great foresight. Exactly. Um, so uh, so what happened over the summer is once these uh, once these uh, legislative uh, uh, efforts take place, they file with the Supreme Court what's called a suggestion of mootness. And it's essentially, it's like a motion. They basically say, okay, uh, these things have happened, the case is moot, we would like you to dismiss it. And of course the the plaintiffs had a chance to respond and explain why the case was not moved, why it was still a live dispute. And what the Supreme Court did was they deferred the issue to the full merits of the case. The idea, what New York City wanted to do is they didn't even have to argue it. They wanted the Supreme Court just to summarily get rid of it. You know, it's moot, make it go away. Supreme Court said, no, File your brief. New York City didn't want to file a brief. The court said, no, no. File the brief. We're going to argue this in December. Be ready to argue everything. Argue the merits. Brief the merits. Argue mootness. Brief mootness. We'll hear it all at the same time, Uh, which is, of course, what happened. Uh, So on December 2nd, last week... Um, uh, the court was prepared to hear everything. And as I said at the beginning, it was almost entirely on the mootness question, um, which tells you how important the concept of federal jurisdiction is. The courts do not want to to be hearing disputes that they should not be hearing. And when a case is before the US Supreme Court, it's especially important, because the last thing the Supreme Court wants to do is do something that undermines this very important concept of limited federal jurisdiction. So that's why this is so important. That's why they spent most of their time on that issue in our audience, because it's a big deal. You know, if they set a precedent that we're gonna hear cases we shouldn't be hearing, think about all the other lower federal courts that are gonna follow that and, and, and take a lesson from that. So it's a big deal, it's a big deal. Um, so it really came the whole the argument for the most part came down to one key question: Is there anything that the plaintiffs could get from the court that they don't already have, and that's that's kind of how. Uh, uh, the initial questioning framed the, the uh, argument. Uh, Justice Ginsburg went first. Justice Sotomayor went second, and the two of them were really hammering on that uh, with uh, with Paul Clement. Uh, Paul Clement was arguing on behalf of the plaintiffs. Um, uh, Richard Deering was uh, the city attorney arguing on behalf of the New York City, and then also there was a third attorney um, on behalf of the United States from the Solicitor General's office. That's something that's not unusual in significant constitutional cases. Uh, The United States is often invited to appear and argue as an amicus curiae. Uh, The court often wants to hear what the view of the United States is on something like this, on major constitutional questions. Uh, So you have three, three lawyers arguing and Obviously, uh, Paul said yes. There is something we can get. Obviously, the city said no, and the solicitor general took a very interesting position. The United States' position was yes, there is relief that can be gotten. That is, it's not moot, but for a different reason than the plaintiffs were arguing, and that's that's important because it added an extra element that could keep the case alive. And it was uh, it was they spent a lot of time on these things. There were three basic issues uh, uh, as to whether the case was alive or not there were three things that they were are they were talking about in oral argument number one future consequences okay the idea that past conduct past violations of the travel ban could result in future consequences either prosecution or even or even more likely permit denials um, they, they could manipulate uh, uh, the ability of people to obtain permit renewals or permits in the future if they violated the terms of the permit restriction in the past. So that was one of the main arguments that, uh, that, the, uh, that the plaintiffs made, was that there are future consequences to these people. Even though it's prospectively uh, eliminated, there's, bad things can still happen, so they still need a declaratory judgment and injunctive relief preventing the enforcement of that law as number 1 number 2 was relief regarding the mode of transport because the original the original restriction required direct even if you were going to those seven approved ranges the transport had to be direct now interestingly the statute that the New York State legislature passed also used the word direct and when New York City repealed those uh, provided those two exemptions and rolled back its restriction, it, it added the requirement that transport be continuous and uninterrupted. Correct. And so mm-hmm. now that should sound very familiar yes. to New Jersey. Yes. Yes. Yep. Oh, yep. Because These we antis love this. We have very similar re- requirements here in New Jersey direct travel and reasonable deviations. And so that this should be sound very familiar the idea. Can you That's stop? That's no accident. Can you? Of course. Can you stop for a cup of coffee? Can you go visit your mother? Right. You let's let's say you live in in Brooklyn, and you're heading to uh, you're heading to Woodland Park Range. You're going to cross the Lincoln Tunnel. You're going to travel through Manhattan. Can you stop for a cup? Of, can you stop at Starbucks on your way to, to the Lincoln Tunnel? Can you visit your mom on West End Avenue on the West Side to, before you're going to head to New Jersey? Can mom you calls and you
3: says, "Get me a r- marble rye." What do you do? You're screwed. Right. Get a Zebra. A marble or rye. Or <laughs> if you have a heart attack, can you stop at the hospital for right, treatment? Yes. Exactly. Right. Well, they that's brought right. up the mother-in-law right.
2: issue. Who was it, Gorsuch, that brought up the mother-in-law I, I, I issue? For, I forgot yeah, who, who it was. Gorsuch. I, I yeah. forgot who brought it,
3: but but, see, but that's
1: important because the dispute over the continuous and uninterrupted was—that's a new law. This, is, this, what the city said was that's a new law. That's a separate case, right? If you're if you bring a lawsuit over an existing law, then the lawsuit is over that law if we pass a new law that you don't like, then you start a new lawsuit over the new law. You don't get to bring the new law into the old case." And so they were saying, whether or not you think continuous and, interu- and uninterrupted is a problem, file a complaint in the district court, and we'll get back here later. What the petitioner said is, no, no, it's not a, It's not. Uh, it doesn't require a new lawsuit, and the reason it doesn't require a new lawsuit is because that issue would have been addressed in this case. And I'll get to that in a little more detail later, but there was this clash over whether this continuous and uninterrupted travel was new or was old. And that was, that could ter- serve to be critical. And the third one was the idea that the plaintiffs could obtain damages um, for violations of their constitutional rights. So... Uh, the way this went down, and if you read the transcript, you, it's pretty clear. So uh, Paul Clement went first on behalf of the plaintiffs. Yes. And so the, we heard basically from the four justices in what's considered the liberal wing of the court. We heard from Ginsburg and Sotomayor and then Kagan and then Breyer. And they seem, they seem pretty convinced, obviously, that, that the case is over. Um, and I think even Sotomayor said, look, you got everything you wanted. What, 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 are, you, what are you looking for here? How, how are we deciding a case where you have all the things that, that you possibly ask for? And, of course, on the conservative side, um, uh, Alito. Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch really led the charge in challenging the city on whether it's in fact true that the case is, is really over. Um, now, interestingly, Justice Kavanaugh did not ask any questions. Uh, so it's, there's really no way to tell what he was thinking about and what might be what might concern him about the case. You know, you can't really predict what justices are going to do. Although you get a, you can get a feel for it a little bit. Obviously, by the way they ask questions, but you really never know. So at least the one thing you can kind of tell at least what are they thinking about? What issues are in their head? What are they concerned about? And so that can give you a little bit of sense of where you think they might be going. Again, predicting judges is not a, not something I'd recommend. You know, it's something that's a really... And it's a Thomas habit. never asked questions. Thomas almost never asked questions, so yes. he did not, and he... And he Roberts
2: not. had a couple of little questions. Yeah,
1: and, that, and, and that's that's the thing, you know. Now, let me get back to Thomas real quick. You know, Thomas did not ask questions, you know, as, his, as is his usual uh, approach. He doesn't generally ask questions. Um, but with Thomas, uh, he's in an interesting situation because Thomas has on multiple occasions in recent years written dissenting opinions from the denial of certiorari and so as you know for 10 years the Supreme Court has refused to take cases and in a whole bunch of those re- especially recently including the Peruda case which is the California uh, uh, carry case and in uh, Sylvester which is the California 10 day waiting period case uh, Thomas, and, and a few others Thomas has written dissents and saying look we should be taking these cases. It's ridiculous that we've waited so years and years and years and we haven't heard a single other Second Amendment case. So Thomas explicitly feels that they've got to hear these cases. So it's an interesting question as to whether Thomas is likely to allow this case to disappear um, on movies. He may very well be inclined to find that the case is live because for him it's very important that the court hear these cases.
2: Excellent, excellent.
1: When we come back, Scott, Dan's gonna let you talk
2: a little bit. <laughs> but Dan was at the Supreme Court, so it's his it's gig first. Dan she talks next the whole time, time you go to we Supreme Court. Power, from, I,
0: I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only five feet tall and a hundred and six pounds, she was easily able to drop her 6-foot-4, 250-pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless-looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful, man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000 pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you, in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a Lipstick Bodyguard and keep it with you always. The world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. And what better way to say I love you than giving the ones you love a gift to keep them safe? Lipstick Bodyguard. It looks just like a beautiful little lipstick. But just like a beautiful woman, it has the power to bring a grown man to his knees. Lipstick Bodyguard. Fear no evil. Get yours today only at LipstickBodyguard.com. Just follow the link on the GunForHireRadio.com homepage.
2: No, no. All right, we're back, and uh, Dan is going to continue, and Scott's waiting in the wings because he wants to discuss Red Flag and Mag updates. But so, Dan, so go ahead, continue now. So Thomas was quiet. Roberts, you're going to get into. Go ahead. Well, Chief Justice Roberts, not a, I'm not a friend of this.
1: This look, this is not going to <clears> be a surprise to anybody uh, who is paying attention to this case. Um, it, Roberts seems to be the key to the to the case. I mean, that, that's not that's not a. Sh- I'm not going out on a limb saying that. Um, What I will say is, my sense of it is that it's difficult to tell what he was thinking. Um, Some people disagree with that. Some people, I mean, look, if if there's a CNBC article out there which insists that the case is over, I think we we can all just disregard the CNBC article. Um, It's 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 like the person wasn't even there. Uh, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but mm. you read the article. It's they were watching the ba- stock market. It bears very little relationship to the actual <laughs> oral argument. Um, in fact, if you want a good, just quick, crisp synopsis of the argument, I recommend Amy How, uh, Amy Howe's article from Scotusblog.com. She does a very good job of. I read that. What happened? She's very objective, very clear. She hits the r- important <clears throat> points, and that's a very good synopsis of the. Yes. Thing. Um, uh, but, uh, so, so, th- so, yeah, I think, so I think, uh, I think Roberts is, is key to the whole thing, and I'll get to, I'll get to sort of what, why, I- I- you know, in terms of his thoughts in a minute. Um, but what I want to do is go to the substance <coughs> of the oral argument because that's really where, where the keys are. So let's talk about the future consequences issue. Um, so it took a while to get there, but the city seems to have committed to no future consequences. And when I say it took a while to get there, the the city was sort of hemming and hawing for a while. You know, I think it was, I think uh, uh, Gorsuch and Kagan and maybe even Sotomayor were all asking um, Deering, well, you know, are, are there, can, can someone be prosecuted? Can someone be? He says, "Oh yeah, no prosecution." And then he said, "Well, what about permit denials? Oh yeah, no permit." Denials. So it took a while in a very roundabout way. Now I think even Gorsuch uh, or even or Sotomayor like asked him again just to kind of nail it down. So are you sure there's no future consequences? And he he seems to have said yes. I I I want to go back over the transcript again just to see what the exact words were because lawyers have a tendency to word things very carefully. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, the government tends to do in these kinds of things is if they will commit to as little as they possibly can get away with, which is why the justices kept hammering him on this issue. Well, what about this? Are you sure about that? One of the issues was, well, how are you going to do that? In other words, who, who are you communicating with? How are you communicating, for example, to the NYPD about the fact that they're not allowed to arrest people for this kind of stuff? And he said, well, we have a letter and we have a memo. But what's interesting is that um, Paul Clement's response to that in rebuttal was, well, wait a minute we're entitled to an injunction from a court right i mean why do we ha- why should we have to rely on the word of an attorney in an argument in a in a, in a lawsuit we're here for an injunction the injunction has a force of law the injunction is enforceable by a court through sanctions of contempt and that's what we came here to get and we're not going to get that. If the case is considered moot simply because the attorney representing New York City says we're not going to enforce this, Correct. you know, that's not what we came here for. We came for an injunction enforceable by court order. So so an, that makes a very interesting point because the, the question of, well, how does a person rely on this and how does a person in New York City know that they won't be arrested or they're not going to have trouble with the permitting authority over this, it's a very good question um they can't point to an injunction they can't point to a judgment of a court all they can point to is the transcript they're going to bring the tra i think uh, paul actually actually said this or somebody said it i think it was paul um, Are they going to carry the transcript with them you know they're going to they're going to when, when the police officer comes to arrest them uh because they previously uh carried t- took their uh, gun to Westchester um they're going the to pocket. have the good pull transcript out of their pocket. Say, see, injunction. Richard you Deering no said. So, you know, th- that's a that's <coughs> a very uh, a valid point. That the injunction is the thing that you get when you file a complaint for injunctive relief. You get injunctive relief. That's what you want. So that's a, it's an interesting point. It'll be interesting to see. And again, whether Roberts finds that compelling. I, I, is, is that's the key, right? Because the qu- he only asked two or three questions, and they were relatively mild questions, and they all were about future consequences. He was one of those justices who said, well, what about this, what about this, what about this? And that was it. That's all he asked about. So if he's truly, if if the future consequences thing is the key to his thing, then the question is whether he's going to be persuaded by the, the entitlement to an injunction that's enforceable versus the word of the city. Granted, when you tell something to the Supreme Court of the United States, you ought to follow it, but they're not exactly the same. and I think that's a, it's an important distinction. So the second one, of course, was mode of transport, uh, the you know continuous and uninterrupted. And the examples, as you know, as you read the transcript, the examples given were things like stopping for coffee, mm-hmm. visiting your mother, things like that. And you know that that obviously has implications for folks in New Jersey because to the extent that uh, that the court decides to opine on what that means, there may be some interesting things they say about things like that. Now, they, I don't know that they're going to give a, a rule kind of on the merits of those kinds of restrictions, but to the extent that restrictions like that matter for the purposes of, of, uh, of jurisdiction, you know, there may be something coming out of this. And, and the, uh, you know, here's, what, here's what Paul said about this. He said, look, the continuous and uninterrupted uh, 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 rule the specific language did come after the case was filed. This was part of their mootness strategy, but the requirement for direct travel was always in there. And he said, look, if we had prevailed if we had gotten the court to rule that it was unconstitutional, the remedy would have been an injunction, and you can be sure that we would have been arguing over with the city of New York as to what kind of injunction we were entitled to. Yes. And our position would have been we're entitled to travel, in, you know, to to travel without these direct, without this requirement of direct travel, and the city would have said, nope, you got to travel direct, and there would have been this would have been an issue in the case. So this idea that this. This uh, continuous and uninterrupted concept is brand new is not true. It's not a new concept. This would have been an issue in the case that we would have argued over at the injunction phase. So again, it it depends on which of the justices are willing to accept that that was a real thing. And it matters, because if it's a brand new concept, then probably it needs a new lawsuit. If it's part of the case, then it's part of the case. So that's one of the issues that this is going to turn on. Um, and uh, and uh, the last one is uh, is damages. Um, these kinds of cases typically do not request damages. Now, in a civil rights case or any kind of case, you can typically ask for money damages. You've been injured. Uh, and uh, money is a is a a, a a remedy that you can get from a court in fact it 's usually the remedy that you get from a court in in lawsuits and civil rights cases are are no different but in these kinds of cases where there are constitutional attacks on regulatory schemes typically you 're not asking for damages typically you're asking for a declaratory judgment that is you want the court to declare that it 's unconstitutional and then you want an injunction the court prevents the government agencies from enforcing the law. So you want declaratory and injunctive relief, and in this case, that was no different. They did not specifically ask for damages. In their prayer for relief in the complaint, they asked for injunctive relief, they asked for declaratory relief, and importantly, and this is what lawyers always do in in any kind of case, you put a catch-all. At the end, you ask for and any other appropriate leave, relief that the court deems just and appropriate. Mm-hmm. So you kind of say and anything else that the court wants mm-hmm. to throw in. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the solicitor general in their brief and in, and an oral argument, they said, you know, even though they didn't explicitly ask for money damages, they could get money damages, and that was another important issue at oral argument because the position of the city was, look they didn't ask for damages. This isn't a damages case. So they're not entitled to damages. And I, fa- I found a very interesting aspect of the argument just as Gorsuch, when, uh, the, when, uh, when Deering was up uh, arguing on behalf of the city, he said, look, he said, this case is five years old. Now, is it really reasonable to expect a plaintiff to anticipate five years in advance that there's going to be some kind of mootness maneuvering going on when it gets to the Supreme Court—is that really reasonable? You know, uh, do you have to plead in anticipation of this kind of maneuver to expect, oh, five years from now we're going to be at the Supreme Court arguing mootness? It's not unreasonable. I mean, that—that's—that's that's a very, very. Good point. You know, when you when you design a case, you expect things to go kind of in a certain way. You can't really anticipate years down the road these you know crazy things are going to happen that you're going to be arguing mootness uh, in connection with a granted cert petition. And now you're going to be in oral argument talking where 90% of the argument is about mootness. It is a, a very good point that it's unfair to expect litigants to anticipate that and design their their complaint to account for every possible maneuver uh, that the that the defendant could possibly con- up with, So, you know, I find that fairly compelling, and again, it, a lot of this is going to really turn on whether the Chief Justice finds these various arguments and positions compelling, and that's what's going to be important. This, I think there's really no good way to know from the argument what the Chief is thinking.
2: So you don't have a prediction?
1: I don't have a prediction. I really don't. I really, th- I really think that it, it's hard to tell, and I will tell you that um, I've read... Um, I read a blog post by uh, Josh Blackman, who's a, uh, a law professor. Um, he blogs on the Vol conspiracy, and he's also co-counsel with me on the uh, defense distributed uh, lawsuit. Uh, very smart guy, by the way. He knows a lot about a lot, um, and he's very bright. And, but he, now his view is that he thinks that the chief was convinced that the case was moot. That, that was his conclusion. I read th- that too. He thinks, based on what what he heard at argument, that the uh, I'm not so I'm not I'm not ready to go there. I, I'm not so sure that I agree. Scott,
2: uh, what do you think?
3: I think it would, I mean, from a lawyer's perspective, for them to find mootness in this case sets a terrible precedent because it basically says to every future litigant, okay, or every future regulatory agency that passes a law, you can pass whatever the hell law you want and then right before we consider it, you can repeal it and get off scot-free. It's a okay. great angle I, I haven't thought I, I, of. I yeah. think the principled thing to do for any for any justice that is trying to uphold the law is to not fall for the momentary tactic and to uphold the principle. There is no, to me, there's no legitimate argument that a late mootness, in self, you know, intentional mootness... To avoid Supreme Court scrutiny should let a town or municipality get off scot-free, no pun intended. Um, that's what I think about it. I think the right thing to do is mootness should have no bearing on this. They, it, You know, the Supreme Court granted on the merits. You have two federal courts that render decisions. Then at the 11th hour, they maneuver to create mootness, and we're going to fall for that? That's absurd. You know,
2: what do you think of Scott's angle, Dan? You
3: know, there's, there's, there's a
1: lot of merit to it, because this idea of manipulating the jurisdiction of the court is a big deal. I'll give you, I'll give you another example. Um, there's a... Uh, I've, I've spoken at length uh, about uh, the uh, gravity knife case that I was handling in New York, uh, Copeland versus Vance, on behalf of knife rights. Well there was a parallel case uh, that was waiting for the disposition of our case of the Second Circuit when we were up on appeal called Krakow versus Vance. Um, and the, in that case, uh, following on the Second Circuit's decision, the district judge—a different judge than we got—kind of wish we had him, um, Judge Crotty—concluded that the that the gravity knife law was void for vagueness in a certain application of the law. So he may, he gave a narrow ruling, favorable but narrow, and he sort of did it because he was constrained by the Second Circuit decision in our case. Um, and so the Krakow case is now on appeal. To the Second Circuit. Okay. Now, similar, there's a similar, there's a, a mootness issue uh, there as well because the uh, the New York State Legislature, uh, as I think we've talked about this, New York State Legislature repealed the prohibitions on gravity knives that are in the penal law. So, it, so those those statutes are now repealed. So here's what happened in the Krakow case: the City of New York and the and the DA's office. Um, argued to the Second Circuit that the case is moot and therefore because the the, uh, criminal restrictions have been removed argued that the case is moot. Now not only do they argue that the case is moot and the appeal should be dismissed but what they argued is that the judgment below in the district court should be vacated, uh, should be eliminated. Why? Because there is a doctrine that when an appeal becomes moot in some instances you you the proper procedure is to get rid of the decision hmm. below. Why? Because the appellant no longer has the opportunity to vindicate their position. They lose their appeal, right? If you say, look, I, I I'm trying to appeal this to the, to the court of appeals. I think I'm right, and I think the court of appeals will agree with me and vacate and reverse the decision below. But now I can't, because the case has been mooted. Okay, so here's what happened. The problem is that the mootness argument was coming from the appellant. You want to continue? After yeah, the when we after come break? back. I'll continue after break.
2: When we come back, he's going to finish that. I want to hear your opinion on which way the Supreme Court case goes. What do you think? And then I want to hear his opinion. Yeah, I, and then you got to talk about red flag. Yeah,
3: just red flag. Skip the magnet.
2: Our target retrieval system is all digital. You program how many feet you want to send it out and it stays there. Both of our ranges are tactically baffled which means when we run our higher level courses you can move forward to the firing line and shoot in any direction and bullets can't escape. When you come out of the 50-yard range to your left you'll see our large classroom and go back up to the concierge and make a right. We have two smaller classrooms And those classrooms are for small one-on-one classes, our Build-A-Bear, Building an AR. As you enter through there, you'll see that we have a uh, portal with a key to go into our Platinum Lounge. They can sit around and watch TV on the leather uh, chairs or couches, and they can maybe work deals with their uh, clients. And you normally don't see a cafe in an indoor range. New Jersey, we have this archaic law where you're only supposed to go from your house to the range, range to the house with no unnecessary deviations. I'm seeing a lot more families coming in now where they have multiple kids and the wife will stay in the cafe with one or two kids and they'll do a handoff.
0: Sandy says I'll never be
2: seven mentally. I'm happy with that. Go ahead, Dan. Finish with the problem with that.
1: So on the, on the Krakow case, at the Second Circuit, so we represented knife rights as an amicus on this motion. Why? Because we wanted to make sure that we tried to prevent the very favorable decision of the district court from going away. So as an amicus, we filed a brief of the Second Circuit supporting crack out the the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, plaintiff's position on the motion. Here's what we said. We said, look, the idea behind vacating the decision of the district, of the trial court, when you, when you lose the ability to appeal through mootness, it's a fairness issue for the appellant, right? The idea is, look, I'm trying to appeal, and now I can't. So it's not fair. I lost below, but I think the appeal would be successful. It's not fair to, to keep this judgment against me when I can't even appeal. The problem here is that the party that was advocating mootness was the appellant. Ah. We argued that it's an un, it's un, it, it's, it would be wrong to allow them to manipulate the jurisdiction of the court by saying, oh, we think the judgment below is wrong. We'd like to appeal, but it's moot. So vacate the decision below. What they're basically saying is we want to win the, with a shortcut. They can't win on the merits, so instead we win because we get to argue mootness. We took the position, no, no, no. They have to argue against mootness, right? If they want to say it's unfair to us, then they got to do everything they possibly can to preserve per- the appeal. Yeah, preserve not argue it, yeah. that it's moot and then say because it's moot we get to, we get to win. So it's a shortcut. So that's another example. We pointed out to the Second Circuit that it's it's an example of manipulating the jurisdiction of the court. And I can tell you that the court denied the motion. And they well now what they did was they moved it to the merits, kind of like what the Supreme Court did. But that's a big deal. This idea of Litigants playing games with the jurisdiction sure. of the court is a big deal. So Scott, is, Scott makes a very important point. And, it, you know, just as the Chief Justice, you know, the, the, one of the things about Chief Justice Roberts is it, it, it's generally believed and understood that he, that he, as the Chief Justice, feels that the, the reputation of the court is very, very important. And so just as much as it's important that the court preserve its reputation and its integrity by not hearing cases it shouldn't be hearing, I think it's also just as important, equally important, that the court not allow its manipula- its jurisdiction to be manipulated Correct. by parties. So it cuts both ways, and I think that's actually going to be a very important aspect of this case.
2: Scott, so what do you think? If the Supreme Court moots this case, what happens to the carry cases that are sitting there?
3: Well, um, <laughs> one of, well, they... That's a really great question. You know what? What we, your opinion? Well, my opinion up until you asked your question, okay, is that there's going to be a ruling clarifying aspects of the Second Amendment out of the New York City case, and then one of two things would happen to our uh, our carry case. It would either be sent back down to be redecided under new rules, or an appeal would be accepted directly by the Supreme Court. We're in this limbo right now. That's You know, the case hasn't been rejected, but it hasn't been taken either. We think we're part of a group of cases being held for an outcome in the New York City case, which is part of why New York City is so desperate, and New York State now, to moot the case because they realize it has much greater implications. So they can New York City and New York State can take the hit for the rest of the country. That's their thinking. So, you know, if the New York City case goes away, I think the chances of... New Jersey's carry case getting taken directly go up, but what it would signal for the country if the New York City case is found to be moot is something much more serious. You know, if you're going to be an honest justice here, okay, of the U.S. Supreme Court, you're not going to allow the court knowingly, obviously being manipulated in this gotcha. way, okay. You're going to take a stand. You may hate the Second Amendment, but you should hate the city trying to manipulate what the court does in this openly dishonest way. And so if you're one of the liberal anti-gun justices, you should still vote against the mootness argument and then Vote the way you want on the Second Amendment. Yes. Let it be heard, but don't try to use a procedural, a blatant, obvious, transparent procedural remo- um, maneuver at the very end. It's yep. not like New York City saw the light when it went to the lower court, okay? You know, I mean, right. they're, they've waited till the very end. It's so transparent. Um, so, anyway, that, I mean, that's, that's what I think. They need to get whacked down. They really do. On the the mootness thing is just dishonest. It's um, blatantly dishonest. And if you're a justice falling for that, you know you're either intentionally going along with that or not smart enough to see it for what it is. That's, uh, you gotta I got to be careful I, what go, I say. I'm going to change the subject because
2: yeah. Dan is probably going to close a little bit. But Scott, why haven't I been red flagged yet?
3: Who said you haven't?
2: Oh, but I haven't been red flagged. (laughs) Maybe your
3: friends in law enforcement just haven't. I uh, keep asking for my
2: red flag. Why haven't I got one? (laughs) Can you update us in New Jersey about what's going on with red flags? Well, first,
3: yeah, yes, I can. And and first, I just want to—I assume everybody's familiar with the concept. If, if um, a family member, which is very broadly um, defined, or law enforcement, really anybody, in effect, thinks that um, you shouldn't have firearms they can go into court and initiate a procedure whereby your guns are taken and you don't find out about it until you get a knock at your door okay you don't get due process until after the fact and I, listen in America due process is a foundation of American law and jurisprudence due, all due process means is before we do something that affects your rights we tell you and you have a chance to present the other side to, Take away constitutionally protected property without advanced due process is just blatantly unconstitutional. But, and you know, we've all heard these arguments, but here's the argument most (coughs) people haven't heard. Okay? Think about this for a second. If clearly there are people who shouldn't have firearms, okay? And if you think there's somebody who shouldn't have firearms and they're about to imminently do something terrible to themselves or others, do you, A, start drafting affidavits and <laughs> run into court and hope that weeks, if you're lucky, uh, in weeks a judge right. is going to make a decision or do you dial 911? Right. Okay, People, the whole premise behind the law is phony and the premise is that there is not an existing mechanism to deal with a true emergency. Right. But there there is. is. It's called 911. The case law around police emergency powers is clear. It's been developed for generations. It's not this Thing. And, and by the way, if you have time to write up affidavits and to run into court, it's not a true emergency, right. and you right. should be giving due process. Yeah. Okay, the idea that you're not—it's just—it's—it just twists and turns the Constitution inside out. Um, there are already at least there's already at least one challenge pending, based on class action grounds. We did we had nothing to do with it. I have no idea what what's going to happen with that. There are other challenges planned. A courtesy of Dan Schmutter. Um, are working on a challenge. It's not just you run into court. You have to find the right person, Can I but that's coming. So
2: for all of you people that are yelling, what is the NRA, what is ANGRPC Andrew doing about the red flags? They were looking for the right plaintiff. Someone had to get the red flag enact it and go through the process and now they're working on that. So for everybody out there listening, it's happening. There's that other guy from South Jersey that wrote all the Nazi stuff that he took his case and a federal judge disagreed with it but that's not funded by us because we need the right plaintiff, okay? And that's what's going on right now. So action is being taken and you guys do agree that if when that red flag gets to the Supreme Court, it's going to get knocked
3: out. I, listen, it should you feel it, it should get knocked out under traditional notions of American law. There are many reasons why it should be knocked out. Whether it will or won't. Listen, we're going to have a sense of where the Supreme Court's right. at, and when we get this ruling in right. the New York City case. Oh, and by the win. way, by the way, the ruling in the New York City case, the whole outcome of our carry challenge hinges on on what happens in the New York City case. So it's not just an exercise. You oh, know, that's nice across the river. Mm. You know what's happening. It's it's going to directly affect what happens i think sure. with the with the carry case you know one other thing about red flag that most people don't know new jersey's iteration is among the worst in the country well of course one of the other things in it is that it allows you to fabricate allegations when you run into court about the person you want red flagged without a special penalty we argued to the legislature at the time i did this personally That if you're going to monkey with somebody's constitutional rights, you better make it a serious offense if somebody lies and it results in the wrongful taking of constitutionally protected property. They refuse to do that. They're relying on some unrelated provision somewhere else that's essentially a slap on the wrist and is never invoked. Okay. Well, look at so what's
1: going on in Congress and what's going on on a federal level. It's the same thing.
3: We are, listen, my, my personal opinion is we're devolving toward lawlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have I very high hopes that the Supreme Court is going to remain a bastion of grounding in fundamental principles of American law and not the, quote, evolution of American law into something that's distinctly un American. Yeah. We're going to find out a lot when there's a ruling on this New York City case. Um, you know, the Roberts thing, He he's very concerned with appearances. Like Dan says, he should be concerned with appearances on both sides of it. But in the end, appearances is a lot less important than correct rulings. Right. Upholding Amer- the American justice system, if... If these cases go away, if the New York City case goes away, and if our carry challenge goes away, and if red flag is supported, because there's all kinds of arguments you could make that red flag is, uh, you know, doing the job and needs to be supported. <laughs> L- I mean, listen, what what this has become is people are backing into justice. They're articulating justice the way they want it, right. and then trying to find courts that will validate that. And they're, you know, under Obama appointed no justices and right. others. You've seen this move to redefine yeah. everything. So it may say something, but its meaning is distinctly different from what was intended. So there is a lot riding. Uh, I mean, f- just looking at the huge picture, President Trump's el- former election was extremely consequential. He has yes. appointed many judges to the federal 182 bench. 182 to date. Okay, to the federal bench. We see now a different makeup in the Third Circuit. That's the middle-level mm-hmm. federal appeals court that has jurisdiction over case. certain cases arising in Jersey and other surrounding states, um, we've seen a distinctive change. A year ago, when we were arguing on the MAG ban, that there should be an injunction to halt it, it the court, a different makeup, we might get a different decision if we had that court's makeup You know, yesterday, right. you know, that we have today. So, thank God, we have a force that's trying to restore traditional American law. You know, this notion that Foundational principles should evolve and change. Is uh, it's, it's the it's the the grounding of transforming the country into something it was never intended to be. So I, I know so I'm way afield here, no, I, I, but I,
2: I wanted to hear that. I wanted to hear that. So you two guys, I can't thank you enough. So let's quick back to Dan. Dan, what do you feel if they moot the case? You can close the case. Scott, thank you for the fight. We'll keep you posted when the plaintiff comes up for the red flag in New Jersey. Uh, So what do you think? If they moot it, what's going to happen? Well, it's actually interesting. It could go two different ways. I know, I know. I want to hear your take.
1: If they moot it, they could moot it in a full opinion that will come out in the spring. But they also might moot it. Uh, in a conference, because they could decide that it was to dismiss it, what they call dismissed, as improvidently granted. That they could do at a conference. That could actually come fairly quickly. What happens if they just do that in a conference quickly? Maybe there's time for them to grant cert in another case. Maybe Rogers.
2: Maybe Rogers, maybe Cheeseman, maybe Gould, or the other 20 that are A bunch of cases in.
1: waiting for them, so it would not uh. be interesting if they dismiss it immediately and then hear another case this term.
2: Listeners out there, NRA, ANJRPC, CNJFO, donations... This doesn't happen by accident, all of these cases. So support those who support you. Board member Scott Pock, executive director of the ANJRPC, our own Second Amendment rock star attorney over there, Dan Schmutter from Hartman & Winnicki. Make sure you support him as well. This doesn't happen by accident. Fingers crossed. Do you guys feel this is the closest we've ever been to a carry permit and Second Amendment and any kind of relief? In I like do. the past thirty years, Scott, I do. I, do. I mean, the whole thing yeah. could
3: collapse on itself, but <laughs> we are—we we can taste it. Let's just put it that way.
1: Dan, what would you say? Uh, every, every, every step forward is a step forward, and that's all it is. We're marching. We're marching forward. This is a marathon, not a sprint.
2: Lawyer answer, but thank you. <laughs> uh, don't forget January sixteenth, Urban Revolver. Sandy and I are taking that class. January tenth at Tienzia Kali uh, pen and knife. Thank you all and uh, have a great day.
1: Well, it looks like you've done it again. You've wasted yet another perfectly good hour listening to Gunfire Radio. Gun for Our Radio is a kind of think media production. The music is broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music New York, New York. We love you guys.
2: Thank you. Thank mom. you, gentlemen. It was a great show. Your show comes out soon, Sunday Sunday. Mm-hmm.